week of February 14th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 529, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in a state of emergency, I'm Michael Giltz. Why are you in a state of emergency? Is it Valentine's Day that has you in a state of emergency? It's the weather. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You see, I live in Los Angeles where it's, I, and I know, please don't hate me for this. It's 70 degrees and sunny. Grr. And I guess uh, for most of the United States, uh, it is about one degrees Celsius or lower or zero degrees uh, Fahrenheit. I mean, it's really, really cold and right, snowing. Yeah, we're not so cold in Alabama, but there is a state of emergency for 28 counties. There's going to be some freezing rain and some ice, and they can't handle that. And you know, there may be some power outages and things like that. It's very exciting. Winter weather. I went through a squall to get to where we're recording the show. I had to go through a squall. There's no other word for it. Rain everywhere. Well, you know, uh, there was a meme going around. Uh, about uh, the weather report. There was a weather reporter from Birmingham, Alabama, in fact, Ah. who said, hey, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Listen, if you don't love the one you're with, then you should leave right now because you're not going to be able to leave after after today. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like David Letterman. He was a weatherman briefly, and he was a lot of fun. I don't think he did a great job of predicting the weather because he was not a trained meteorologist, but he was amusing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and actually, I'm going to bring up David Letterman, I think, later on in this episode. I have a feeling we'll, we'll be bringing up David Don't Letterman. be meme. Don't make us wait any longer. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are celebrating the Chinese New Year for a lot of reasons. The number one market for movies in the world is open for business, and the success of Chinese film bodes well for the return of Hollywood. Whenever Hollywood can return, which we hope will be the fall or... Or Christmas, or please come back. Okay, well, uh, when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, though, our lips are sealed no more. You'll see why I say that, because the Go-Go's are finally on the list of eligible acts, and Michael and I will, well, we'll weigh in on who made the cut and who deserves to get in. On Inside Baseball, we are diving deep into the era of sexual misconduct, social media, and the blowback they engender. See what I did there with gender Mm -hmm. and gender? Oh, well well done. Yeah, yeah. It's impacting everything from the rose ceremony on TV's The Bachelor to one of of French cinema's most important players to the Star Wars universe. Shia LaBeouf has checked himself into a facility to get inpatient care, by the way. We should kind of mention that. Yeah, we'll cover all of that. It's a it's a roundup of tons of stuff. Yeah, of course. During Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll all, you know discuss all all the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right, and we're looking at box office around the world. We pulled information from everywhere we could. We miss you, Comscore, and it's great news. It's the Chinese New Year, which started February twelfth. It's the year of the ox. That lasts 16 days, but only the first seven are a public holiday. And those first seven days, February 11th, New Year's Eve, through February 17th, are a huge day for movie going in China and to a degree around Asia. So big money to be made, just like Christmas or Thanksgiving or July 4th here in the United States. And it's great news. Basically, here's the, the, the top story. In China, the number one movie is Detective Chinatown 3. It grossed $397 million since it opened. In North America, the number one movie is The Crudes, A New Age. After being on screen for 12 weeks, uh, the animated film 
popped up back to the top of the charts and grossed $2.7 million. That sounds unbelievably tiny, but both of those numbers are seen as good news for Hollywood. Now, why in God's name would we know why Detective Chinatown 3 is good news? Explain. Okay, well, first of all, Detective Chinatown 3 is a year in the making, meaning that it was ready to come out for last year's uh, Chinese New Year, last year's Lunar New Year. And of course, all the movie theaters were closed in China. And so they held it for one full year. Now, the and question so all was, the studios that held their movies and are saying, wait, we don't want to release them yet. That has to make them feel good, doesn't it? Nobody said, oh, that movie, I'm bored with that idea. Yeah, it's been sitting on a shelf. I mean, I've never seen it, but still, it's sitting on a shelf. It must be all, it's stale. It's like bad wine. No, it's, it, and, and here's the thing. Keep in mind, that movie made $397 million during its opening week, okay? 50% capacity. At the very last minute, the Chinese government came in and said, oh, by the way, movie theaters, you can't serve concessions. And, uh, oh, by the way, you can only uh, sell 50% of the tickets to every I, I show. Don't, I don't believe that's in every market. I, I think it depends on the number. So I, I don't think it's across the entire country, but it is certainly the, true that they have also uh, lowered capacity in certain markets. It might even be 25% in some places, but yeah, that's true. So that actually, we were worried that would impact the numbers too, but it was big. And the main thing is moviegoers in China are no different than the moviegoers anywhere else in the world. They're dying to get back to the movies. They're clearly doing it. And so we have to hope and believe that when movie theaters are open again in North America and Europe and everywhere else, people will flock back to the movies like they always have. But why would the news of The Crudes, A New Age, why would that $2.7 million be good news? The movie's been around for three months, and it's sort of just— Okay, well, I was I was tapping into China first, kind of going in order. Uh, but here's what I would say to, to, uh, to that. The movie's been out for 12 weeks. Crudes, A New Age, 12 weeks, okay? Why in the world would—and by the way, it's been available— Premium video on demand. You could you could mm-hmm. stay home and watch this darn thing for twenty dollars, okay? And yet, on a, what is a holiday weekend, essentially here in the U.S. because it's President's Day weekend, people said, "You know what? Let's go to the movies." Granted, only thirty eight percent of movie theaters are even open in the U.S. And even so, you know what people decided? I want to go to the movie theater and see a movie I could watch at home. They even did that for Judas and the Black Messiah because when you think about it. That movie is available right now, day and date, on HBO Max. And it just goes to show you that movies that are mostly available in movie theaters can actually beat those that are uh, out day and date. So that that is it, that's what's interesting to me about it. Well, they're both available at home. So it's, it's just the yeah, fact that's that true. People, people are desperate and they want to go to the movies. Even when they have to go with a mask on, even when they have to put their kids in a mask, even when most theaters are closed or at really reduced capacity, they still said, yeah, we want to go to the, we got to get out of the house. We want to go to the movies. And that, just like Detective Chinatown 3, makes us believe that when everybody's back in full force and there are big new movies and people can go and not have to worry about being in a theater with just 50% capacity or something like that, that they're going to do it. So it's good yeah, news all yeah. around. People are hungry to go to the movies. So back. I to mean, the even te- the Mauritanian, I, I saw the Mauritanian, uh, which, yes, it received some mixed to middling reviews. I liked it a little bit more than most people. I thought it was a, you know, a, a good film starring Jodie Foster and Tahar Rahim. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw Dear Comrades, uh, Andre Konchalovsky's movie. If you mm-hmm. get to see this movie, it's on Hulu now. But between Dear Comrades and Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is on Amazon Prime, I wondered if the movie theaters were open, whether all three of those movies 
well, the Mauritanian is in theaters, but all three of those movies should be doing well in movie theaters, especially Map of Tiny Perfect Things. It's perfect for teenagers. Cool. Well, I'll have to check it out. So back to the top of the charts, Detective Chinatown 3. Uh, that's set in Tokyo's Chinatown. It's the third in a series. The first one was set in, was it Thailand? And the second one was set in New York City's Chinatown. And now the third movie is set in Tokyo's Chinatown. Can any other ethnicity do that? Have movies set around the world in neighborhoods where they are so well-known dominant. I mean, there is an Indian, a, a Bombay sort of neighborhood in, in New York City and Queens where you feel like you're in India. Uh, and there are other neighborhoods, in, but so identifiable that people go there. Let's go to Chinatown in San Francisco. Let's go to Chinatown in Tokyo. Uh, I don't think there's any other culture ethnicity that could do that around the world. So it's great. They get the best of both worlds. They get a real Chinese film. But they also get exotic settings in a way, so it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. But it's set. No, I, I I know though that you will see this movie in IMAX. Oh, I will. Why? Because it was shot in IMAX. One hundred percent in IMAX. Mm-hmm. So that's where it set it set records for IMAX in China. It set a one day record, one hundred and sixty million dollars in one day for Detective Chinatown three. That's a worldwide record for a single market. It beats the Avengers Endgame and their one day total of one hundred and fifty seven million dollars. It's opening weekend is Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And that three day weekend and that opening period of, of what, what, what was the total? $397 million. I had to look at those numbers again. That's a new worldwide record for one market. It beats, again, Avengers Endgame, which had the record for $357 million. However, asterisk there, Avengers Endgame did that in four days. It opened on a Thursday through Sunday and grossed $357 million. Detective Chinatown 3 grossed that in just three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's amazing. That's great. Uh, that's really cool to see. That's the number one movie in the world, of course. However, it's been trending down in word of mouth and reviews, while the number two movie in the world, Hi Mom, has been trending up. This is a China, a time travel comedy. It's Chinese. It grossed $160 million. It's ended up with better reviews than Detective Chinatown 3. It's getting great word of mouth and has trended up, doing better, I believe, on Sunday than Saturday. So there's now the expectation that Hi Mom, could end up being really close to Detective Chinatown 3 in total grosses. It might even pass it. So it's good news for everybody, but word of mouth matters. Detective Chinatown 3 opened big. Hi, Mom opened big too, but it's just catching fire. At number three around the world is A Writer's Odyssey, another China film. It's an action fantasy that made $48 million in its opening week. Boonie Bears, The Wildlife. We've heard about this franchise before. The animated film series uh, had a new edition. It grossed $33 million. Right below that is The Yin Yang Master. That's been acquired by Netflix, so we'll be able to see that in the rest of the world on our streaming service. In China, it opened up to $25 million. Right below that is a different adaptation of the story of Noja, the Chinese uh, supernatural deity. It's called New Gods, Noja Reborn, and its animation is sort of punkish and cool, cyberpunkish. That's the impression I get. So it's more of a, I guess, a young, younger take on the Noja story, and it opened it to $20 million. And then perhaps the, the least well-performing movie of the whole batch of six big films, it's Andy Lau's comedy Endgame, no relation to Avengers Endgame. It opened to $12 million. So sure, he got a ton of attention on social media when he finally launched a social media account, but his new movie didn't do so great. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, people, but he is a big star. And then way down below that, we have The Croods, A New Age, Judas and the Black Messiah at $2.4 million. 
and Robin Wright's directorial debut, Land, which opened to $1 million. We also have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, links in our show notes to stories about all these things, about Shanghai's old cinemas tell of a power reversal between China and Hollywood. What's that about? This is what's interesting about this is, first of all, it was written February 4th, put online February 4th, and is in today's newspaper. So I don't know why it took 11 days for it to get into the Los Angeles Times in was print. It the, was it the weekend edition or, you know, like a magazine? I, I don't know. I think it was just Monday's newspaper. Okay. Um. So basically what you, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, Endgame is not re- related to Endgame, uh, the, the Marvel's Endgame, right? And, you know, it's kind of funny that that, that the uh, the Chinese are taking the name of an, a Hollywood movie because they've basically taken a playbook out of Hollywood. And what this is saying, this article is saying is that, and, and what's really interesting about this is all of the facts and figures that are in it, that uh, movies in China grossed $2.7 billion in 2020, uh, which of course is down from the record-breaking $9.2 billion they earned. Uh, it has the number of that's, movies- that's the, that, that's the market, not the Chinese-made films. Cor- that's the entire cor- market. Correct. Yeah. Uh, that there were 1,037 movies made in 2019, and of course 650 made even during the coronavirus. Uh, but basically it's saying, look, you know, China used Hollywood to get where it needed to go. To, to launch all these movie theaters, to get people going to the movies, but that China is going to use the art form of cinema to increase its soft power. And I guess, uh, well, I'm trying to remember, uh, Hollywood, this is James Traeger, or James Tager, a research director at PEN America. He said, Hollywood needs access to the Chinese market more and more, but China needs access to Hollywood films less and less. And that's well, we, basically the, the gist of the whole article. It's a right. fascinating article. Right. We've been talking about this for a decade. China is got a nascent film industry. It wanted to build it up. It wanted to learn everything it could. It wanted to mimic Hollywood. It wanted to make movies that would be popular with its own people and hopefully promote them around the world, but especially wanted to use that soft power to keep pushing uh, the values and the, and the government propaganda that it believed in, uh, depending on how you want to phrase it, which happens in the U.S. the same. It's just not directed by the U.S. government. <laughs> so yeah, right. China China was young. They made crappy movies for a while. They made crappy animated films, crappy dramas. They got better and better at it. They imported Hollywood directors. They sometimes brought in stars and technical people. They learned everything they could. Uh, every country does this. They do that in the Middle East. They do it in Latin America. They do it all over the world in, in every industry. They try to protect their industry when it's young. They want to get it as strong as possible, and then they're ready to compete on the world stage. The U.S. did it too in the 18 and 1700s. China's doing it now, and it's it's a good thing. They've got a big, huge market. They've got a ton of movie screens. They need product. So yes, they can now make their own movies more and more, but those powerful people with a lot of money who have bought all those movie screens, they want Hollywood movies too. So yes, they need yes. them less and less, but they still want them. They want to show big movies, and they're going to continue to do so. So it's a win-win. We don't have to be threatened by any country with a strong local market. We want French films to succeed. We want African films to succeed. And we want China to have a good film industry because people express themselves. They make money. It's a, it, they tell their story. They learn other people's stories. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, I think uh, this article points a little bit to toward how Hollywood is working with China, and I guess Stan Rosen put it best. He is a uh, political science professor at USC. He said, if you want to do business in China, then you have to make some concessions. And when you start doing that, it's a slippery slope. 
how far are you willing to go? And basically what they're saying is that there has been a chilling effect on the way Hollywood makes movies, what movies it will make, what movies it will release, because they're all looking toward the Chinese market. And they know that you are only as good as your weakest film, that you could make 30 movies. And if the last one is critical of China, then all 30 get thrown in the bin. Well, yes, not necessarily. But yeah, Richard Gere's career has suffered because major studios don't want to put him in big movies because he is persona non grata in China. There's no doubt about it that he has paid a price for his political speech, and I don't think he regrets it at all. Hollywood does kowtow a little bit too much, if that's the right word, to China sometimes. They shouldn't uh, bend over backwards. You know, they 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 you know they panic over the badge on a sleeve for Maverick and Top Gun. They panic over this and that. They, you know, they want to make sure they protect their brand too, which means making the movies they want to make that will be popular all over the world, and they want that Chinese market. But if that means they're going to hurt themselves in North America and Europe and Latin America to do it, that's a too high a price. So yeah, they've got to find that right balance. And and you're right. Uh, there are lots of stories, and I think uh, Chris Fenton actually. Uh, in his book, uh, Feeding the Dragon, kind of pointed out how we kind of, in the U.S., kind of stole patents from Britain very early on uh, in the 1700s as we were kind of an emerging nation. Right. Uh, and But, uh, you know, I would be very interested to know, though, whether we uh, put our thumbs on the scale the way China is in saying, well, you can't release this movie on this date, you know, the way they had these blackout periods for this particular industry. In other words, well, a lot of countries you know, just won't let you. A lot of countries say you can't sell your car in our country at all. You can't do this. You can't sell it at all. We just block it from our market. So yeah, that that sort of stuff goes on in all sorts of industries for hundreds of years. You know, it's annoying okay. when it happens to you. <laughs> but yes, they're they're also more about the government propaganda and simply wanting to block certain movies or protect certain time periods for their own local market. Yeah, other countries have done it as well. You know, the, uh, but doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean you don't fight back. It doesn't mean you want to make sure if they belong to the World Trade Organization that they must follow the rules, which China has not done in many, many areas. They force companies to give up their trade secrets if they want to get into the market at all. There are things they do that should disqualify them from being in the World Trade Organization. But that's, uh, you know, that's a fight that has to be fought. Yeah, However, the article also goes into like how. During the Cultural Revolution, there were, you know, nationalistic movies, but they were bad. And now all the movies are nationalistic as well, but they're good because they've learned from Hollywood. Well, are there nationalistic movies in the U.S. that, that are anti-U.S.? You know, I wouldn't think so. Oh, I don't know. You know, you make know. Rocky, you make, you make Rambo. Do you think that's not nationalistic? Do you think the John Wayne movies aren't nationalistic? Of course they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but they're exactly. not made by the government. They don't need to. They don't need to bother. And, and they're <laughs> exactly. not made by the government technically in China, but it's all one big company. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that there's the battle in China over what movies can be released and what they can say. There's also a battle about movie grosses and what's going to be reported. This is getting to be a worse and worse problem, isn't it? Well, yes, because what it started with, I think it was Warner Brothers that said, don't, don't report grosses on Tenet, at least not until after the weekend. And then Sony went, yeah, us, us too. And then one by one, every single distributor has said, yeah, don't report. We're not going to report. Comscore, you can collect them. Please do collect them for us, but don't 
publicize them and don't publish them uh, to the media. And yeah. so when you go to Box Office Mojo, there's like one, there's the box office list is one film long. It's ridiculous. Right. But this isn't about Comscore being uh, quiet right now. This is about the trades not getting information. We have no data on the film Minari, a Oscar hopeful. We have no data on Searchlight's Nomadland, another big Oscar hopeful. Uh, so we don't know what they grossed or what they did. And that's unprecedented for the modern era, really. That re- almost never happens. If it does, it's big headlines like with Tenet. And it's turning into the new normal. And that's not good for them. That's not helping your movie. That's not helping the business. It's a bad habit to get into. And that's what they're falling into. Yeah, I mean, Minari is a, a good film, mostly in Korean, the Korean language. Uh, Dear Comrades is Russian. Also, you know, well, these a are great film. films. We, un- we understand yeah. these are films in, in international languages. That's okay. It's got nothing to do with it. They're Oscar hopefuls, and they're not reporting the movie grosses over the weekend because they want to hold it close to the vest. That doesn't help you. We understand there's a pandemic. We understand there's a many theaters are closed down. We will report the numbers responsibly, but they're not doing it. They're not making that data available, and that's not helping them. Yeah, but now let me ask you this. Do you think it would help? I know we're talking about movies, but do you think it helps your music career if you are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Absolutely not. Wait, what? No, of course not, because you have to be in the business for 25 years before you can qualify. And by that stage, if you're going to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're already a big act. So what you're saying is, my segue into our music section was a very poor choice. <laughs> no, not at all. That's a, it's a good point to make. You're, you're already a, a superstar. You're already a legend, at least among your fellow musical peers. So it doesn't hurt. And if there's somebody is pretty obscure, I suppose somebody might check out their music that they hadn't heard of them before. But you've heard every act on this list, probably. You're probably pretty familiar with almost all of them. Maybe not world music star Fila Kuti. Uh, you know, maybe you've never listened to Rage Against the Machine or or Devo. You're too young to know Devo, and you might want to check them out. So it doesn't hurt their little streaming sales. But if you're getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you've already made it. Yeah, I mean, Is maybe it, not Kate Bush. A lot of people may not know Kate Bush. She's my favorite. Yeah. I would totally vote for her. So we're looking at the list of the this year's nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We have some returning acts. We have some new acts on the list. And you get to vote as a fan. I think that starts in April, something like that. Or maybe you can vote right now. And we'll see who gets in. You've got everything you can imagine from world music artist Fela Kuti to the queen of hip-hop soul, Mary J. Blige, to Dionne Warwick. Does Dionne Warwick belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Let's find out. Yeah, and you know, uh, Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. Let me rock you. You know, <laughs> so she's on rock. Yeah, I mean, I thought uh, Steve Zychek's, uh tweets about this uh, about the announcement of the of the nominees were kind of interesting. He said, you know, every year I I see this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame list, and I'm like, wait, they're not in already? He's like, half of him is saying, wait, they're not already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the other half is, wait, are they a rock act? <laughs> like, but we, we talk about this every year. Like, okay, is Jay-Z a rock act? He's been in some rock songs. That's for sure. LL well, Cool J. I thought he was in already. Who knew? Yeah. He, uh, there are 16 people on this list. One of them is a pure rock and roll band. That is Foo Fighters, the spinoff from Nirvana. Uh, Iron Maiden is a heavy metal band. This is, I think, their first time on the list. But yeah, you're looking at New Wave. You're looking at singer-songwriters like Carole King. You're looking at hip-hop acts like Jay-Z. You're looking at glam rock like the New York Dolls. They're rock and roll. You've got Todd Rundgren, great engineer, great producer, great solo artist. You've got Tina Turner, 
who's had a great career. But you could argue whether she's rock and roll or not. But the fact is, I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is more like the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's pretty all-encompassing. And it would be silly to look at the last 30 years of music and not think that hip-hop is the dominant form of music and to not think hip-hop is pretty darn rock and roll in terms of just the music of youth, the music that shakes up the status quo, the music that makes your parents go, ah, turn off that noise. You know, (laughs) that's rock and roll to me. And Jay-Z certainly qualifies. I don't like his music. I wouldn't even necessarily vote for him. But if I was actually on the voting committee and he was on the list, I would say, you know what? He's not my cup of tea, but yes, he belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If he's eligible, he belongs. It's it's more subjective than, say, the Baseball Hall of Fame. At least in baseball, you've got a lot of stats. And the Rock and Roll is not about who sold a lot of albums, or Todd Rundgren wouldn't be on there. But Jay-Z has sold a lot of albums. You can look at those stats and, and the success he's had. But just in terms of critical opinion, in terms of impact, even though I don't really care for even the blueprint, I'm just not a big fan of Jay-Z, uh, I would vote for him. I wouldn't vote for LL Cool J because I don't think he's had a substantial career. I just don't think his music as a body of work matters enough to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't think even most critics think he belongs there in terms of his music. Jay-Z, a lot of people do. I don't agree, but I will bow to the majority opinion that, yeah, yeah, you'd look foolish if Jay-Z doesn't get in. I don't think LL But let me ask you this. Out of all this entire list, who's got the beat? That's what I want to know. Yeah, the Go-Go's are finally on the list. Uh, They were on uh, maybe once before. This is the first time on the list. They've got a new documentary film out. There's more awareness of women in rock and roll and the prejudice and sexism and the the nightmare stuff they had to deal with. And so there's it's their time in terms of just great timing. Uh, I think the Bangles are probably a slightly better band, (laughs) but Go-Go's are important. You know, they have a great, greatest hit set. They They were female rock and roll band, all playing their own instruments, all writing their own songs, and they topped the charts. No female act had ever done that before. The Runaways with Joan Jett aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Joan Jett is. They belong in there, but Go-Go's are definitely pathbreakers, and for their importance in the industry, and they've got some great, great songs, they certainly belong. You know, so the only one on this list... uh, Yes. You say Kate Bush, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, You also say yes for the New York Dolls, who we talked about recently. Yeah, they're Todd Rundgren is a yes for you. Yeah, and Tina Turner and Dionne Warwick. See, people say, all right, hold on. Dionne Warwick is not rock and roll. She She just isn't. Right. Maybe so isn't Whitney Houston. Maybe isn't so other are people who are in the hall. However, Burt Bacharach, one of the great songwriters of all time, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a songwriter, just like Carol King. Right. So, you know, Burt Bacharach's in the hall. Elvis Costello's in the hall and he recorded an album with Burt Bacharach music. So they collaborated and they got a great album. So if Burt Bacharach belongs in the hall as a songwriter, his greatest interpreter, Dionne Warwick, who held her own in the 60s, delivering one great song after another in the burst of rock and roll. If she doesn't belong, why not? It doesn't make any sense. He gets in, but she doesn't. His music is no more or less rock and roll than the than the albums she recorded. And her and, but, body but of not, work is tremendous. It's great. It's wonderful. You really should check it out. But not the Foo Fighters and not Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, they're just not my cup of tea. If I was voting, I wouldn't. There isn't anyone on this list that I would really think, oh, that's ridiculous that they got in. Uh, you know, Foo Fighters, I find boring. L Cool J, I don't think has the body of work that deserves it. But he's a nice guy. Everybody knows him. He hosts the Grammys. Maybe he'll get in. So, you know, Jay-Z will get in, I believe, right away. First first round, uh, you know, he should get in. Uh, some of these others, I imagine, will get into. Iron Maiden, however, heavy metal, 
I know nothing about heavy metal. I don't care about heavy metal. But their singer, Bruce, their, one of their members, Bruce Dickinson, had a great quote. He, was, he just got nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and yet he's mocking them. That's rock and roll. He says, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's run by a bunch of sanctimonious bloody Americans who wouldn't know rock and roll if it hit them in the face. They need to stop taking Prozac and start drinking effing beer. <laughs> that's now probably that's, yeah that's, that's rock exactly how he sounded yeah that's yeah, a rock exactly. and roll quote he deserves to get in the hall just for that quote <laughs> that's how i feel so you know it's fun to argue every year we'll see who gets in and, and we'll probably what i don't know we could watch that maybe on some streaming service it was on hbo for a number of years i don't know who cares the cer- carries the ceremony anymore maybe this year there won't be one but i do know that streaming is bigger than ever disney plus had some news they hit 95 million subscribers worldwide they added 8 million people in one month now there's a caveat here and i don't think it's a bad one a lot of their growth this month was via Asia, where they have Hotstar, a satellite TV service. They, remember, bought a bunch of 20th Century Fox properties. And one of the properties they bought is Hotstar. Like DirecTV, that's a big Asian satellite television service. And they signed up a ton of people. A 30% of their new signups came via Hotstar. So the money they're making per subscriber has dropped worldwide because these subscriptions in Asia and in India are not as high as they are in North America. And they're pretty darn low to begin with. So the average subscriber, the amount of money they make per subscriber has dropped to $4 each. That's okay. That means they're growing in big parts of the world. And if you're going to grow in Asia and Africa and parts of Latin America, you're not going to make as much money. So it's not a sign of, uh-oh, you're, you're doing something wrong. It's you're growing. You're adding subscribers. If you add 100 million people in Asia, your per subscriber amount is going to drop. And that's okay because they're paying less and you are growing. But it does remind you, as Netflix says, Disney's charging a lot less. They were charging, what was it, $7 to start or $6 to start a month? And then they yes. raised it a dollar uh, in Asia. They're charging less, just like Netflix does. So it's no different for any other service. So eight, uh, Disney Plus is making $4 per subscriber. They have 95 million subscribers. Say they're at 100 million. That means they'll make $400 million a month per subscriber. Netflix has 200 million subscribers. They're making $10.82 per subscriber worldwide. So each month they're making $2 billion per subscriber. So Netflix says, hey, if Disney sticks at $4 a subscriber, they're going to need 500 million subscribers just to match the amount we're making today and we're still growing. So this is not a game. It's not like, oh, Disney's doing something tricky. No, they're growing around the world. They have a lower starting price. They're going to slowly raise that price. We'll see what kind of churn they get. Which they've already done. They've already done that. In North America, they raised it a dollar. Yes. That's right. uh, So we'll see how that goes down the road. But that's what you do. You're a new service. You want a lot of quick signups. You charge a low price. And then you see if they stick with you as you add more and more content. Disney Plus also has, of course, bundles, including ESPN Plus and Hulu. ESPN Plus is at 12 million people now, and Hulu is at 40 million people. By the way, Hulu, name the big cable subscriber, pay TV providers in America, Spectrum, DirecTV, blah, blah, blah. Comcast. 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 The fifth largest paid TV provider in North America is Hulu. They have 5 million subscribers to their pay bundle, Hulu Plus Live TV. So that's a growing area too, and that's a really profitable one. YouTube as well. You know, everybody's bemoaning cinema, right? I Mm -hmm. would be, people should be bemoaning the cable providers. You know, people, 
if people actually appreciated their cable providers, they might feel a little, uh, you know, sad for them. But no, people hate their cable providers, so they're like, "Oh, yeah. good riddance to those guys." Right? Cut cut my subscription by fifty bucks a month, and maybe I'll like you more. Netflix exactly. continues to grow. They have added local production offices in Canada, and that joins offices they have to make content locally in France, UK, Netherlands, Mexico. India and Australia, and I'm sure they're not done yet. We have a chart. Brazil. For the they have one in Brazil. You forgot Brazil. Oh, I beg your pardon. And Brazil too. Dun, 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 dun. So we have a list of the top streaming uh, properties in streaming this week from Nielsen. We have the last two weeks. I forget why. Did we not have a show last week? We did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, 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 we did. Oh, I know why. The uh, January 4th through 10th charts came out just after we were done with our show. So we That's now right. have. We now have charts also for the 4th through the 10th and the 11th through the 17th. Combining everything into one chart like I like to do, Bridgerton is on top. Cobra Kai is at number two. Night Stalker, the search for a serial killer, which scared my niece when I came home and she heard the door open while she started to watch this thing about a serial She's like, is that you? Is that you? <laughs> she, she was a little on edge. That was at number three. We're looking down at the charts. Mariposa de Barrio is up on the Netflix chart. That's a telenovela they acquired. Uh, Shit's Creek is still doing well. Outside the Wire is a movie on Netflix and LA's Finest. If you look at the combined chart for January 11th through the 17th, everything is on Netflix. If you go to individual charts, which we have from them for original series or movies or acquired series, then you will see that Disney Plus is in the mix there. Uh, Amazon is in the mix a little bit. Uh, it just depends on what service you're looking at and what kind of stuff you're looking at. So you just got to look through all the charts uh, to see how people are doing in individual categories. Yes, comparing a single film to a series with 150 episodes is apples to oranges, but those are the things people spent the most time watching. And it's especially notable when a movie like Outside oh. the Wire on Netflix can gross five. Oh. And net 556 million minutes and be in the top 10 overall. So that's that's very, very impressive because obviously a lot more people got to watch that for that to get on the chart. I think it's a big deal. Look at it all. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. Oh, I see. I see what you're trying to do. There. You're trying to move us along into big deal or big whoop. Our weekly segment where we decide if, uh, well, what do we decide? We decide whether the top headlines in entertainment are really, you know, important or just you know, overhyped nonsense. And yes, I was not actually on that section when I started to to speak and had to find it and totally forgot what I was saying, as you, you can probably You, you tell. winged it. You winged it. You're I a pro. I winged it, yes. They never would now, have known. Yeah. Now, now, here's the thing. Advertisers, as you know, Michael, they love celebrities, especially if said star, if said celebrity has wide appeal and, and as we will discuss later, no controversy. It's even better if they almost never do endorsements, by the way. That makes Bruce Springsteen perfect, perfect as a celeb endorser. Pairing him with the all-American brand of Jeep vehicles? I mean, come on. That's even better. Bruce, that's what happened. At the, yep, it happened at the Super Bowl where Jeep aired a two-minute ode to the quote-unquote center, the middle of America, somewhere between the red and the blue, between anger and fear, between love and hate, and you know, and so on and so forth. It was all narrated by, by the boss. As he drove around in his own battered up Jeep. Awesome. Totally awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, a few days later, we found out Bruce Springsteen was arrested for drunk driving back in November. Jeep pulled the ad from YouTube and thought, damn, we knew we should have gone with Marilyn Manson. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> uh, it's a big whoop. It will pass. It's not good to drink and drive. But 
please, let's just give a tip of the hat and full respect to Bruce's people. Uh, how the hell did they keep that secret for two months? I mean, that's well, that's, uh, that's Jersey just being like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> I mean, how did that well, stay quiet? Uh, it obviously came out now because of the Jeep ad. People said, oh, this is too good not to bring up. But I don't know how they kept that secret. Well, it's, uh, you know, when you actually get into the weeds, which I don't want to do here, uh, and you find out exactly what that arrest was for, and you kind of go through supposedly what is now being an, uh, kind of revealed is that he was never even driving like he he took long story short he was in a park in sandy hook new jersey some fans said oh come over bruce take a picture with us which he is known to do uh and they said oh take a shot with us so he took a shot there was a police officer in the park saying guys you can't be drinking in the park he went to get on his motorcycle and the police officer said hey hey hey, you just took a shot you can't do that and arrested him for dui um, but he never actually, and so the question is, will it stand up? Because of course he never actually drove. That's, that's what, uh, that's why his people are saying, we'll that see what is happens. Not, that is not how it didn't come out. It's not like nobody thought it was a big deal. Oh, no, no, no. If, people, no, if the no, media I, I, found I out Bruce Springsteen, uh, was arrested for any reason, that would be news. So full credit Correct. to them for ma- managing to keep that quiet. Uh, that was just one ad. It kind of blew up in their face, but it'll be okay. Uh, the Michael B. Jordan ad for Alexa. By far the best ad on the Super Bowl Sunday. And when you look at the ratings and how people rated their ads, <laughs> my Alexa just turned on. Uh, that was <laughs> that was by far the most popular ad. It was quality-wise a country mile ahead of everything else, no doubt about it. And not just because the ads are usually weak. That was a very clever, very good ad. And how quickly the halftime show changes. Remember two years ago, it was poisonous. Nobody wanted to touch it. Black Lives Matter, Colin Kaepernick. But... You got Jennifer Lopez and Shakira in there. People get bored thinking about it, and it's gone from, oh, whatever. You had the weekend as the actor. Nobody's talking about it anymore. How quickly they forget they didn't want to associate with the racist NFL owners, and they wanted to say, no, this is something that you can't do until things change. Nothing has changed. (laughs) Nothing's changed, but there you go. If they want to stay safe, next halftime show, I say Dolly Parton. Why has she not done a halftime show? Everybody loves Dolly Parton. My friend said, my friend Vincent said, Parliament Funkadelic, which would never happen, but it would be awesome, he said, if they had their, their spaceship on the stage and then Dolly Parton came out of the spaceship to do a duet and it's George Clinton and Dolly Parton duetting at the Super Bowl, that would immediately be the greatest Super Bowl of all time. But Dolly Parton, seriously, someone needs to start this. It began here, nine to five, islands in the stream, I will always love you. Everybody loves Dolly. It's crazy it hasn't happened before. Nothing could be safer and nothing would make everyone happier than to have Dolly Parton do the halftime show. Well, there's one one place that would not be seen. Oh, on the BBC in China. And here's why. Because in a tit-for-tat reprisal, China has banned the BBC from its country exactly one week after the BBC revoked the broadcasting license of China's English-language channel. Just as the UK banned Fox News for trafficking in misinformation, it banned China's mouthpiece for failing to meet the standards of accuracy it demands. China insisted it was banning the BBC for exactly the same reason, with, you know, the only difference being that China's you know, they're probably lying. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's a big whoop, but it's a shame for China. It's a shame for coverage. I should say, to clarify, it's, chi- it's BBC World News that they have banned. Mm. It's the news service that they're banning, not yeah. like they don't have BBC One in China. I'm sure there's BBC programming on in China and people will still get to watch, you know, watch that. But no, it is a shame. It's not good. Uh, I don't think the UK was wrong to ban China's service. 
when they were providing propaganda, but the BBC News World Service isn't doing that. They do meet the international standards of a news service, and they should be allowed into China. I'm not sure there's much that can be done about it. See our discussion about the box office and Hollywood movies. <laughs> yes. Uh, so then what you're saying is my my segue into that news story was about as good as my segue into into music. Okay, well... <laughs> Well, here, how about this one? When Disney snapped up the film studio 20th Century Fox, it was hard to imagine that they would have any room for Blue Sky Studios. That's the animation company behind the Ice Age franchise and, you know, other hits, other animated hits. That shingle is more like Mad Magazine than, say, family friendly. So to no one's surprise, it's being shut down. That's right. Blue Sky Studios is being shut down for good. Some of the animators might transition to jobs at Disney and Pixar, which would make sense. But just some, not all. That means 450 animators may soon be out of work. So big deal or big whoop? It's a big deal. It's in a big shame. Uh, this is why the merger should never have happened or Disney be able to buy a big chunk of 20th Century Fox because you have one less company doing business, less competition, less work. It's not good for the industry. It's really not good in a way for Disney. Uh, it's not good for anybody. Uh, it's certainly not good for the animators. And it's a shame to see it happen. Uh, that merger should have been blocked like so many others. Yeah, you know uh, what's what's interesting is I was on a a uh, a trade call or a trade uh, webinar, I guess you would call it, uh, last week with the UK Cinema Association uh, was speaking, and I asked a question about whether in the UK all of these indie cinema operators, which have basically been pummeled, they are going to be going out of business very quickly if the government doesn't step in. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what if? You know, they, I asked the question, what if they all gathered and said, okay, we're going to form a film buying group so that these big companies, these Hollywood studios, can't just say, yes, we're going to release this movie uh, to streaming and we would still like 75% or 65% of the the ticket gross, even though it's available in the home. And what I was told is, oh, well, there's that an would be monopolistic, yeah. Yeah, there's an anti comp. I said, so the, let me get this straight, the cinema operators can, not talk to one another about pricing, but somehow Fox and Disney can combine how, and the guy was like, well, there you have it. Like he had, you know, yep. Phil Clapp was, and he's right. You know, there's not much he could, he could say to that. Uh, you know, there are powerful forces at work when those types of mergers, uh, powerful forces. you sound like Avengers Endgame or something. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? There's yeah, yeah. powerful players. A lot of I money. Say. Speaking of powerful forces, the cast of the hit series The Umbrella Academy has pulled a Friends, and by Friends I mean the TV show. That's slang, by the way, for a TV show's cast sticking together and negotiating pay raises as a group, rather than letting the producers peel them off one by one and create resentment when this actor gets a little more than that actor. And now, the actor Elliot Page, of course, is not a part of this strategy since he was a much bigger star when the show began, but... He has been supportive. The other six main actors, however, will receive a big bump to $200,000 per episode or $2 million for the entire 10-episode season, which is kind of what we make per episode. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Roughly. So, 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 yeah, roughly. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a, it's a big deal. Why? Because it's season two. And they're moving into season three. It's not season three going into season four. We've been learning for years now that a lot of the streamers 
give you a salary. And if it goes beyond three seasons, then you're eligible for a big pay jump. It's sort of equivalent to what happened in the old days for a show that went, you know, five seasons and on network television. Now we see a a group in their season two banding together, being smart, and also saying, look, this show's a big hit. It's grown in season two. You're very excited about it. It's going to be around for a while. Netflix says, all right, we'll negotiate now because we know it's going to be around probably for season four or five. Clearly, they've made that decision, or they would have just said, hold tight, we'll see what happens after season three. So I think it's showing when you've got a hit, people can always renegotiate, and that streaming for all the world saying, oh, it's so different. You know what? You got a big hit on your hand. It's going to be around for more than a few seasons. They're not going to cancel everything come season three yet like they've been doing, not when it's working. And that means people can get money and they don't have to wait till season four. So just like whenever you got a big hit, people will talk and go back to the negotiating table. Just like- Brooklyn- And what else is happening during this? You know, when you think about what's happening, it's it's that there are fewer and fewer places where you can go and actually get residuals. So people are saying, yeah, I know, you know, three year, four, whatever years. Look, this is the only money I'm going to make from this. Is, well, yeah, they knew that going be, in. That's why they were giving yeah. them more money up front. But also they had the escalation happening after season three. So I thought it was very notable that this happened after season two, that they yes, didn't have to wait. So I think this. that's notable. And you can see like another show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine talking about the transformation of the industry while we're talking about streaming so much. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is ending its uh, final season, its eighth and final season with 10 episodes. That means when it and Superstore, and that's another long-running hit on NBC, uh, one of the longest-running shows, sort of a comedy, even though it's an hour long, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, that's just entering its third season. NBC has no long-running sitcoms. That you know, used to be the mainstay for the network. And you know what? Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a cool show. I like it, but it's not exactly a blockbuster. So it's been a long time since NBC had a big sitcom hit. Speaking of hits, Universal Music Group, they release hits on vinyl, CD, eight-track tape, whatever. You know, sure. they have been, they have been going uh, thinking of going public for years now. Every six months or so, they make noises about an IPO, and then, you know, nothing happens. But the company's owner, Vivendi, was very pleased when the Chinese consortium Tencent bought 10% of UMG. Now, that's been upped to 20%, and lots of other buyers have said they'd be interested in buying a chunk at a higher price. So now Vivendi will give everyone a chance. The plan is to float 60% of UMG on the Euronext Amsterdam Stock Exchange so current stakeholders can make more money while new people drive up the price. Big deal or big whoop? I guess it's a big deal. They've been talking about doing something like this on the open market for quite a while. Why they chose to go on the Euronext Amsterdam Stock Exchange, I guess that's because of Vivendi? Nope. Uh, It's because the London Stock Exchange is no longer in Europe. Oh, you're right. That's why they, they, but not New York either. They didn't want their European base. And that's their European base. That's right. London is not in London anymore. Look at that. Thanks, Brexit. Well, London is still in London, but, but London is no longer in Europe. Not not the financial heart of London. Yeah. That's moving to Europe. Oh, boy. Thanks, Brexit. Thanks, Boris Johnson. Way to go. Um, I couldn't find out whether that 60% was of the remaining amount of Universal Music Group or 60% overall, meaning. Only 20% would be left over. Uh, Couldn't figure that out. If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We are also on Twitter, where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. 
Now, speaking of streaming and 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 you know all the all these uh, streaming services. So Dave Chappelle, you might recall, he was upset when his classic sketch series popped up on Netflix. Was Chappelle involved in this decision? Was he getting a cut of you know the money? No, no, he was not. So Chappelle told everyone, stop watching it. Don't watch it. And he told Netflix, take it off. Perhaps fans did stop watching, but we know Netflix pulled the series despite having really the legal right to air it. Soon Comedy Central opened talks with Chappelle, gave him back his license, paid him quote unquote millions of dollars per Chappelle. And now Netflix is streaming it again with his blessing. Big deal or big whoop? It's a big whoop. It sure helps to be a star. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, that's that's pretty cool, though, I have to say. But that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into a complicated inside no. baseball. No, I will be quick. I will be concise. You're just scared of it because you're a straight white man. No, I was trying <laughs> not, to say. You're not, straight? you're not? What? No, I was trying to say that Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing that will explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how this week's topic will affect you. You will not be seeing Army Hammer for the foreseeable future. <laughs> because today on Inside Baseball, we are tackling a whole bunch of social justice stories. Why? Because the repercussions of sexual misconduct, and what I like to call moral misbehavior and social media flare-ups are really, they're impacting every part of the industry, from the upper echelons of the French film industry to the rose ceremony on The Bachelor. Wait, not the rose ceremony. Uh, let's get going. All right, let me, let, me, let me handle these. I'll try to be quick. Uh, first, we'll stop in France. It ain't just Hollywood, of course. France is facing a long overdue reckoning on its winking approval of pedophilia and sexual misconduct of men. The latest is Dominique Boutonnet, the head of France's National Cinema Center, or the CNC. He's been kind of an unpopular fellow since he took charge because he said maybe the French film industry is too dependent on government subsidies and regulations. Hmm. So people weren't, weren't thrilled with him to begin with. Now he's in more personal hot water, being arrested on charges of sexual assault and attempted rape uh, brought by his 22-year-old godson. His lawyer, however, said he is serene. That's a quote. He's serene about the process. Um, the reason I mention this is because I think because he had little support among a lot of the major players in the industry when he took charge, I mean, he had enough to get into the CNC, but now I don't think he's going to have a lot of uh, slack. You know, people are like, yeah, get rid of them. So, well, the he, CNC has already said, well, this was not done on the, the company time. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. By the way, uh, Dominic Boutonnet, I got his pronunciation courtesy of Gerald at Cannes. So hello, yes. Gerald. How do you say Gerald's last name? Duchessois. Duchessois. So merci, Gerald. So thank you very much. Yeah. Moving on, Joss Whedon. Uh, oh, he is, God. He's he is, a major player in Hollywood with major success on TV and films. I mean, we all know him. Actor Ray Fisher. Last year, I think it was, he went public with stories of Whedon's abusive behavior on the set of Justice League, which is a difficult thing to do when you're like a rising talent with everything to lose. And I don't know that he had anything to gain. No. It was very notable that actors on the film mostly mentioned their own issues with the toxic set, or at least said they were paying attention to, to this whole thing. Very few, if none of them, rallied to Whedon's defense. And now it's kind of happened again, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And sadly, uh, apparently, there was a toxic... Uh, there's no doubt about it anymore. Too many people have come forward. First was actor Charisma Carpenter of Buffy and Angel, the spinoff. She echoed Ray Fisher's public statements about director Joss Whedon's abusive behavior. She says, 
that when she was pregnant and came to a meeting and said, I'm pregnant, I'm having a baby, uh, which got incorporated into the show. She said he called her fat after she told him he, she was four months pregnant, asked if she would keep the baby, accused her of sabotaging the show, mocked her religion, and then retaliated. She had said her doctor, she wanted to not uh, to avoid having to you know get as much sleep as possible. And suddenly she was getting 1 a.m. calls to get to the set. And then she says he fired her after she gave birth. You're like, oh my God, what a mess. Immediately, many, many stars on the show spoke up defending her or and specifically saying there was a toxic atmosphere on the set. Amber Benson spoke up and said it was a bad workplace. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller finally we- uh, weighed in. She said, quote, this was on Instagram, Oof, while I am proud to have my name associated with Buffy Summers, I don't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon. End quote. That is heartbreaking to me uh, because and, and then David Boreanaz, David uh, Boreanaz. Just, oh, and others did. Uh, uh, the one, the one little girl playing her l- younger sister said he was inappropriate with her, not in the sense necessarily. She didn't say that there was sexual misconduct, but he was inappropriate with her as well. So, ah, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a female empowerment story. You would think the person who created that show would be the one that would have a very positive set for women. So, and I love his show Firefly. You know, he's been a tremendous talent and I'm, I'm really upset. It's really a bummer, but too many people have come forward not to take this very seriously and to realize Joss Whedon has a lot of problems. Yeah. And then you have Justin Timberlake. Uh, Cry after- me a river. I don't even know if that's a song. Uh, He is, I guess, apologizing after a new documentary on Britney Spears kind of uh, shown a spotlight on the behavior, not only him, but uh, I guess finally... Oh, really? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not about him, but yes, he's apologizing for his own behavior. That's right. He said, quote, said, what did he say? He said, I understand that I fell short in these moments and in many others and benefited from a system that condones misogyny and racism. I specifically want to apologize to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson, both individually because I care for and respect these women, and I know I failed. Yeah, this just strikes as, you know, emergency surgery as, you know, panicky, last minute, uh uh-oh, we got to do something now. I mean, he should have been apologizing and taking responsibility years ago right after the Super Bowl. He was nowhere to be seen when that whole fracas happened. He could have easily said, it was my fault, it was an accident, a clearly, you know, whatever. But no, he he just sort of like, oh, I'm I'm over here. Sorry, I'm going to step aside while Janet Jackson gets pilloried. He and Britney Spears dated, and when they broke up, the whole film is about media and how it treats women and the spotlight on them and how they are set by a double and triple standard. You can see like a young, young Britney Spears having, you know, like old men creepily talk about her body and sex appeal and all these nasty. And then when she dated Justin Timberlake, he could boast about taking her virginity. He could pan her as being cheating on him in the video Crimea River. And she was the one that got all the grief. So, you know, this has been going on for years. He could have apologized years ago for Janet Jackson. He could have stepped up to the mic. And I feel like he's hurt. hurt. Do we need to explain what happened with Janet Jackson? Do you think? No, we, no. That, the Super Bowl halftime show? Yeah, yeah. No. Wardrobe malfunction? Exactly. Okay. No. So well, I know, feel like I, this I is really I, a desperate attempt to be, you know, to do damage control. And I think it's, I don't think his career is over, but this is too little too late. Just that he has a new movie coming out. So, you know, I'm not buying it. He needs to do more. Well, you know, I said I'd mentioned David Letterman earlier in the mm-hmm. show, and this might be a, 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 a good place to do so. He was trending over the weekend. When I found out why, it was kind of on the, the Timberlake front. Uh, it's because, I guess, 
or I should say the Britney Spears front, uh, there was a clip of him interviewing Lindsay Lohan, and I have no idea when this was. It was in the 2000s, I suppose. And he was interviewing her, and it was taken completely out of context. He was still doing his, obviously, his late night show, Late Night with David Letterman, uh, and or the late show with David Letterman. Uh, Lindsay Lohan was on shortly after, like that, that same day or the day before it was announced that she would be going into rehab. She goes on the show and she's actually, she handles it really well. And he's essentially asking her in a very serious way, like, okay, so rehab and you're going in and, mm-hmm. you know, and so let's talk about this in a way. And, and, and people were kind of pillaring him. And I thought, you know what? It's totally out of context. That is his job. She's sitting there. He would be pilloried then if he did the whole interview, a whole 10 or 15 minutes with her, and didn't ask about that after literally just 24 hours earlier, this news broke. So he's damned if he does. He's damned if he doesn't. And he actually was kind of like, you know what? Let's talk about this. Let's be adults. Maybe you can help somebody by, by talking about this. And she actually kind of put him down and and he took it very well like yeah yeah put me down you know like he was when you actually watch it he's yeah i, I thought it was fun and i thought that the the backlash against him what wasn't necessarily well, for a backlash for a 10 year old interview yeah i was like yeah pretty mm-hmm. much so I mean, as, as we discuss sexual misconduct and 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 misbehavior your one thing you want to focus on is defending david letterman <laughs> no what i'm no no it's not defending david letterman well, i'm saying it you are. You're I'm saying, saying he did that, his job well. I'm saying that a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, in that particular instance, that was being taken completely out of context. In what way? They were that, saying she was about to enter rehab and he asked her about it. What, what, what were they yes. implying? What's, how's that out oh, of that, context? Because they were likening it to Britney Spears being the butt of all of the late night show jokes. Okay. All right. Well, moving on. Shia LaBeouf, he and CAA have parted ways. He's receiving inpatient care, taking a hiatus from acting. He's been in care for five weeks so far. So that's good to hear. And reportedly, FKA Twigs, you want to feel even better about her. She was very brave to go public and talk about this. But apparently before she did go public, she tried to reach an agreement with him that in, before filing a sexual assault lawsuit, she was requiring him to get serious treatment and make a donation to a women's shelter and the like, and he wasn't ready to do it. So, you know, hopefully that will that will change. But the, all this stuff raises the issue. When do you dump a star? This is a headline in the Hollywood Reporter. Hollywood debating when to drop a star that's become toxic. I can answer that question, Sperling. Can you? It's pretty they, easy. Yeah, yes, when they start glowing, because if they're toxic, they've obviously <laughs> been to Chernobyl. No, I mean, you know, look, if they've done something that's morally reprehensible or they've broken, I mean, obviously they've broken the law. Uh you know, when they can't make you any money, I guess is there where you were you headed. There you go. There you go. Yeah. When you think you're going to like, lose more money by having somebody on your roster than you will make because either they're not making money or somebody else is going to, you know, walk away from you. That's when Hollywood walks away from these people. That's, that's their metric. That's their ethical standard. And that's the, that's the, the metric they're using right now. That's why people are working with Mel Gibson. They don't say, I object to you and I don't want, you know, but you know, that's the decision made by Disney. They have dumped actress Gina Carano. Uh, she was a breakout recurring star on The Mandalorian. She's been a star for a while. She broke out thanks to mixed martial arts. Then she had a role in the film Deadpool. And now she's been recurring on The Mandalorian for two seasons. She's very Xena, very tough, strong action character. But for months, she's been giving Disney headaches. They were planning a spinoff that she would star in or be one of the key characters in her character from The Mandalorian. However, 
for months now. She has been mocking people who wear masks, mocking transgender people and the argument over what pronoun to use, spreading misinformation about the election. And now the final straw, she compared the life of Republicans in Hollywood to the life of Jews in Nazi Germany. It's like, is that what she was doing? Because I got to tell you, there was this thing on Twitter. All the, all these Jewish people were like, I want to be mad at her, but I don't really even know what she's saying. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, unless they're killing you, you really shouldn't, you know, compare yourself to Jews and Nazis. Plus she was on the Mandalorian. She had a recurring role. You know, she said that her life was actually quite good until she said this. She was a success and poised to be on the spinoff of The Mandalorian, the hottest property on Disney+. Plus. So that doesn't sound like too bad a life. Doesn't sound like she was being penalized too much. Though now she will say, aha, see, I told you. And that's what Chris Harrison is saying. He has stepped back from The Bachelor. The host of The Bachelor is stepping away from the hugely popular franchise, just as this reality show was finally having some people of color in the mix as the lead Bachelor and Bachelorette, just as they were sort of getting their act together to be a little more representative of the country. Harrison tried to defend a white female contestant's social media posts. That contestant had liked posts featuring Confederate flags, shared QAnon conspiracy theories, and then was seen in photos attending an old South Plantation-themed party in college in 2018. Now, his defense of this to a black female contestant who was on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and who was now a, a reporter covering it and was giving him all sorts of opportunity to talk about this stuff. When she asked him about this, he said, well, come on, we're judging her by the lens of 2021 as to what she did in 2018. Was it really that bad in 2018? We all went to plantation theme parties like that back in 2018. I'm like, did he say 1918 or 2018? Because I'm pretty <laughs> sure in 2018, we knew that wasn't so smart i mean yeah i mean come on like oh that was three years ago (laughs) who knew that racism was a problem three years ago oh how old are you 10 i mean it's all a big mess let's end with some good news morgan wallen the country star his album is number one again this week and he released a five-minute video asking his supporters not to defend him That's the new normal, by the way. If you do something wrong, you put out a video saying, hey, people, don't defend me. It was really bad. So he says he's been nine days sober. He's met with some members of the black community. He's got a lot of personal work to do. And he does recognize that all the dumb, stupid things he's done that's really caused him problems have happened when he's been drinking. Duh. So hopefully that will help and we'll see where he gets. That's the right first step to rehabilitate your stuff. And hopefully he'll do the important work. And gay Germans, you got to like them, right, Sperling? Uh, I guess. I sure. don't know why I'm like, I didn't 185 see German actors came out all at once. They all got together and they reached out to everybody and said, we're going to come out as a group. Who wants to join us? They ended well, up. Wait a, a second. Was it, it is February. So did they see their reflection and then run back inside? I don't know. That only happens in Pennsylvania. No, they Never came mind. out as gay or queer. Oh, okay. They all came out at once, including stars of Babylon Berlin, a big streaming hit and the number one drama in Germany, Tatort, which is a crime scene. That's what it means. It's a German crime show. And quote, they said, we identify, among other things, as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, inter, and non-binary. Until now, we have not been able to talk openly about our private lives without fearing repercussions on our professional lives. End quote. All these people said, like, right up to now, they were still being told by their agents and their managers and people, don't come out, don't come out, it'll just create problems, it'll, it'll be hard to get work. I mean, can you imagine in 2020, 2021, people are still saying that? But it's true, so that's great to see. The only bad thing about all that, Daniel Brühl wasn't in the mix. Oh, well, we can't have everything.
I, I was wondering, I was like, why does, why does he have You're like, Daniel was Daniel Brühl on there? I was like, no, I just wanted to remember that I was sorry, Daniel. I was like, oh, really? 185? Um, looking down alphabetically? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also, in our obituary section, you've mentioned Christopher Plummer. And I'm like, well, why? Well, you make a great point last week. You said we were going to limit our obits to someone we had some personal insight on, some personal link, or maybe we interviewed them or something. Christopher Plummer, The Sound of Music, that was the first film I saw in a movie theater in South Florida at the Sunrise Movie Theater on Sunrise in Fort Lauderdale. I can still remember being in there. It was one of the many revivals of the movie, of course. And I was, I don't know how old I was, six or seven. And I can remember that movie like it was yesterday. I can still picture the auditorium. So I did have a personal connection to The Sound of Music. And I've interviewed Julie Andrews. Uh, But other people have died this week, like Mary Wilson, the co-founder of The Supremes. She died at 76. Yes, she was 15 years old, you know, when that when that group right i was died. like 76 that seems too young she was in the Supremes i thought the, in the same 60s. thing but like, yeah. she was a kid when it started out. the 60th anniversary is coming up she was going to take part in all sorts of stuff uh she and diana ross and others were going to get together as the supremes but money stopped them but you know it's all over with now and we can just celebrate the great career she had she was the supreme of supremes because she was there from the beginning to the end she sang on all 12 of their number one hits she's a member of the rock and roll hall of fame uh, they were the most glamorous motown they were the linchpin, the one that became the label's face to the world. She did great stuff. She was the perennial backup singer, the keeper of the flame. And when she penned her first memoir in the 80s, she was the first to tell it like it was. Diana Ross probably wasn't pleased, but that's all forgotten today when she said how, you know, how she's going to miss her. Are you going to miss publisher Larry Flint, who died at 78? <laughs> I'll miss seeing him at uh, the Four Seasons, where he pretty much had lunch every single day. I don't know, lately. Uh, but when I would do uh, press junkets, they were always at the Four Seasons, these press junkets. I, I haven't been to a press junket in so long. I mean, I don't mean, just mean pandemic long. I mean, like, a decade <laughs> long. Well, his uh, life but was, he, was, mm-hmm. he, was always, he was always there. No, always there. That's fascinating. And did you ever say hi? <laughs> I, wouldn't yeah. even, I wouldn't even know what he looks like. The weird thing, running into him while uh, coming out of the press junket for The People versus Larry Flint, and there he is, well, there waiting he for his be. Rolls Royce to be pulled up. Was well, like, wasn't, wow. he at, wasn't he at the press junket? No, wasn't he one of, oh. no, it's the weirdest thing. Oh, that's, that's funny. He was an unlikely defender of free speech. He was the publisher of Hustler, of course, the cruder, envelope-pushing cousin to Playboy. His life was colorful, to say the least. He was paralyzed. He was in a wheelchair. You, I assume you saw him most of the time in a wheelchair, right? Always in a wheelchair. That's how I knew who it was. Yeah, there you go. A serial killer who murdered numerous interracial couples and Jews, because, you know, why not? He shot and paralyzed Larry Flint because Hustler printed a special feature, a a spread, I should say, featuring an interracial couple. Wow. Obviously, his life was depicted in the Oscar-nominated film The People vs. Larry Flint, and, and Hugh Hefner loved him because he made Playboy look classy. Yes. Now, speaking of classy, you know who was really classy? Chick Korea, Absolutely. He, he died at the age of 79. Yes, he, he uh jazz legend. Without, he was like a living legend, without a doubt. He won, like, what, 23 Grammys? Yes. He's the fourth most nominated artist in the history of the Grammys. And he's also credited L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology for deeply influencing his work in the 70s. He read Dianetics, like, when it came out. He was an early convert to it. He, he, he touted his involvement with them all his life. And in the 70s is when he did some of his most important solo work in jazz fusion with solo act and with the group Return to Forever. They combined fusion with an ear for world music, including Brazil. We mentioned that country before. 
before and enough popular appeal to challenge rock and roll. Their albums even hit the Billboard Top 40 charts. He played on Bitches Brew and In a Silent Way with Miles Davis. That was the starting gun for Jazz Fusion. And, you know, back in the day when he arrived, he came to New York City to study music at Juilliard, just like Miles Davis did. And both of them ended up, it was a different generation, but they have spent more time in the clubs than they did in class. Who can blame him? Soon he was gigging with everyone from Cab Calloway to Willie Bobo, and he never looked back. He said this in 1997 at a commencement speech. He said, you should just blaze your own trail. It's all right to be yourself, he said. In fact, the more yourself you are, the more money you make. End quote. And he was right. And he was right. But, you know, you go into jazz. You don't go into jazz to make money because that ain't going to happen. But it did for him. Yeah, it's like trying to make money by being a best-selling author with your name not being Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't write because you want to make a lot of money. That's dumb. Yeah. I'm proof. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about if you're a, I don't know, casting director and you've cast, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Everything. You have literally cast so many movies from The Graduate to The Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, your name would Lynn, be Lynn Stallmaster. That's right. 200 movies, and many of them are movies that we'd be like, he did that and that and this other one. Wow. Yeah. He died at the age of 93. In 1968, in the credits of the Thomas Crown Affair, he was the first casting director to receive a single card credit. He said it was the most moving moment of his life, really, practically. Perhaps he held back like family or whatever, but he was the first casting director in history to win an Oscar of any type, as of course, as of now, casting directors don't get Oscars, but he got an honorary governor's award in 2016. Well, you could go down the list. He touted Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Christopher Reeve for Superman, John Travolta for Welcome Back, Cotter. He helped launch William Shatner, Ned Beatty, Richard Dreyfus, Jeff Bridges, on and on and on. He found college student LeVar Burton to play Kunta Kinte in Roots. On the film masterpiece, The Right Stuff, on that movie alone, he cast more than 100 roles, especially the key part of test pilot Chuck Yeager. He insisted that Sam Shepard, the playwright, should do it, even though Sam Shepard was like, I don't know about that. He said, quote, it's the only time I thought the film couldn't be made without one specific actor, end quote. He also did a lot of TV. 300 episodes of Gunsmoke, Hogan's Heroes, The Untouchables, Heart to Heart. You just can't talk about Hollywood without talking about Lynn Stallmaster and casting directors in general. A lot of times people talk about directors discovering people. Usually it was the casting director who discovered them first. Well, what about, uh, I see you also have here, Jean-Claude Carrier. He died at the age of 89. One of the great screenwriters of all time. Uh, He was Oscar nominated for his work on That Obscure Object of Desire and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. He won the Oscar in 63 for a live-action short film. He got an honorary Oscar in 2014. He began his career as a novelist. This is bizarre. And director Jacques Tati hired him to write novelizations of his films, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday and Mon Oncle. That's bizarre. Yeah. Those are basically silent films. Who thought they needed <laughs> who thought they needed a novelization? And who knew that they did novelizations in France? And who knew Jean-Claude Carrier was one of them? That I can't if you oh if my. you actually ever see these movies, they're not silent, but they're, they're pretty of, much not no dialogue. No, and no, there's just sound no effects dialogue. and things, but it's basically a Charlie Chaplin film, essentially. Yes. And and if you have I'm looking now for I want those novelizations. I want to see what they are. That's bizarre. If you've got one, send it my way. He did a lot of projects with Louis Bunuel, 
including the above, and Diary of a Chambermaid and Belle de Jour. He worked with everybody, everybody, every major European director you can name. He was involved in The Tin Drum, which won the Palme d'Or and the Oscar, uh, The Return of Martin Gare, Danton, what a great film for Vita in 1983, Cyrano de Bergerac in 1990. Both of those were Gerard Depardieu. But here's my personal link. It's not so personal. I saw the movie, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. What a masterpiece. What a great movie. I mean, he did that screenplay, mic drop. It lost the Oscar to Dangerous Liaisons, but you see that movie. It's so moving. It's so great. And then I hadn't read the book yet, and I went to read the book by Milan Kundera. I read the book, and I said, yes, that movie is an adaptation of this book, but I have no idea how they did it. And I, 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 there are, yes, they are linked and I see that. But if I read that book, not in a thousand years would I say, let's turn that into a film. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy to have tackled that. And they did it so well and captured the spirit of the novel somehow, even though that book is literally, you cannot make a movie out of the novel, The Unbearable Land Sabine. It can't be done. And yet he did. And yet, you know what? We didn't think we could get in in under an hour. And we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Success. Exactly. If we're not going to be paid, we might as well take a long time doing it. That's true. Now, you know what? If you want to hear us ramble on for more than an hour uh, next week, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, Spotify. Please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators. I found out we were on Amazon recently that's pretty cool yeah uh so you know what please do rate review us subscribe to us it helps us out when you do that information all those ways to subscribe to us links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website showbizsandbox.com that is where you'll find all those ways to subscribe and ways to follow us at twitter is our show no at twitter no at showbiz sandbox is our handle on twitter uh dirt at showbiz sandbox.com is our email address d-i-r-t at showbiz sandbox.com we're also uh available via voicemail please call leave us a voicemail we'll play it 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we're on facebook facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website every week. It's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's I still love Buffy.com. Which I think is a really Okay, so you know what? If that particular website doesn't have any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry, why not head on over to MichaelGilt's.com where all of his work can be found? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. By the way, I looked up, Twitter does have a Twitter account. It is at Twitter. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) But our work cannot be found there. (laughs) No, absolutely not.